Coming up, Brad Wyman joins Ileana in just a minute. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. And now, it's the I Blame Dennis Hopper podcast, starring Ileana Douglas. Eavesdrop with Ileana as she interviews Hollywood's most prominent players about filmmaking, acting, and what really happens on the set of your favorite flicks and TV shows. Hi, everyone. It's Ileana Douglas. Welcome to the I Blame Dennis Hopper podcast. I'm here with my lovely co-host, Tamara Berg. Hi, everybody. It's a cold, rainy, London-like day. It is. In Los Angeles. Uh, very unusual. Uh, I'm glad you find that amusing, John. I, I, I just find you very descriptive. Thank Put you. me right there. Somebody yeah. last night said, I love the way you say funny. <laughs> Isn't that what, what am I saying? Is it particularly I said, unusual? I said, I can't help it. I'm funny. And he went, he laughed. So anyway. I think you're just funny. Just face I'm it. funny that way. When I was in school, I used to do very serious scenes, and people would laugh. And I was, like, doing something very serious, and everybody... I remember having to... I was doing... I was supposed to be... I told this story before, but where it was a loss of roses, William Inge. Yes. And everybody started to... And in the scene, I am making my young lover, I think, a drink or something. Mm-hmm. And that's when the teacher, uh, Bill Alderson, who wasn't the nicest person in the world, said... You know, Ileana, some people are sexy. You try to be sexy. Oh. And it was like, yeah, you could just. But I la- I just was like, that's going in the book. That's some in- people try to be funny, and some people just are yeah, funny. Some people, yeah. But, uh, Screw him. But I think it Who's was. Who's ever heard of him anyway? But I think it was because he said, you know, you're making the drink and you're like Lucy or, you know, something like that. Oh, uh, yeah. I couldn't help it. Yeah. Anyway, I digress. It is, uh, uh, we always joke, what do you mean there are no seasons in LA? It's award season, <laughs> pilot season. So the Oscars are upon us. Yes. I have to say, uh, my biggest complaint is that by the time we get to the Oscars, we're a little, well, no, actually I have two complaints. We're a little weary because the Oscars are like the, the Oscars should be first and then everything Agreed. else should be after it. Yes. So there kind of isn't a lot of suspense with right. the Oscars. Very true. And we had, you know, Stephen Rogers here on yes, and we were did. like, yeah, we're going to bet one million to one that like <laughs> Allison Janney <laughs> is going to win yes. for Itania. Yes. We're pretty... Uh, I'm going 99.9%. Gary Oldman's going to win. Yes. So there, it's you know, Francis McDormand. So, and then yep. one crazy surprise, which we do not know what that will be. But in the old days, you really honestly, yeah, uh, it was it was exciting. Yeah. Yeah. You really, really like when Dances with Wolves won. Best Picture seems to always be the upset. When Dances with Wolves right. won against Goodfellas, that was like an upset. Yeah. That was yeah. a big, that was shocking. So I, I've, I've wondered this so much, and I've, yes. been, I've, I've actually been meaning Speak to, to me. ask you this for yes. the longest time. So what is, you're an Academy voter. and so Yes, I am. I'm a vote, member of the Academy. And do you vote Hard in that all so. categories, or do you just vote in acting categories, or how does that work? That's okay, not my main question. I have a follow-up. Here's how it works, everyone. And <laughs> it's it's not the greatest system, mm-hmm. but you, you're, I'm sent all the films, 
which a lot of them, again, surprise the people, I really, really try to watch a lot of the films. In the in this first initial round, I, as a member, as an actor, can only vote for other actors. Okay. So they give you a book of every film that was out, you know, last year. So once I'm done voting for myself in every category. Of course. <laughs> naturally. Then I vote for other people. Okay. For instance, I voted for Jake, you know, Gillenhall. He was mm-hmm. one of the, I just thought that was an incredible performance. You know, so you look through it and you you have to remember like, oh yeah, this guy was really good in this right. film and this that's why those screeners and things are so important because sometimes yeah. the movie is only out for a day. Right. So you just vote. You know, I, right. I don't know how many categories you get. Then from that, it comes, you know, back to you. And then there's that first round where somebody announces who is nominated, mm-hmm. you know, for uh, the Academy Awards. Then the secondary thing that happens is that you vote, and then that's when, as an Academy member, it's actually more responsibility for the actors because you vote in every single category, documentary, short subject, live subject, Mm -hmm. animation. So that's actually when you really, really kind of have to dig in. Yeah. Foreign film. And for instance... Foreign film is actually my favorite category because when you're seeing a foreign film, uh, you know, you're seeing probably literally the best film from, from an entire nation, that country. Mm-hmm. And so, so all of the movies in the foreign film are incredible. Right. Um, that particularly my favorite was a movie called The Square, Swedish film that is. Yay, re- Sweden. That is completely uh, crazy and sad and topical and, and very, very interesting. Uh, very, very interesting film. But so, okay, so I have yes. a question. Within, yes. when you're doing, so this I is. I cannot my, reveal who I voted for. No, no, no. And I'm not, I wouldn't ask you that. Um, but what I'm wondering is what do you, what is your criteria when you're looking at acting roles? What, you know, how do you judge? What is it, is it somebody who is, you know, doing an amazing accent? Is it, you know, I mean, what is, what, what impresses you? I, I have to say, what does, what impresses me is I do think about, my God, the amount of transformation mm-hmm. that this person did. I put that into, um, you know, I, I sort of think about that. But just to give you an example, like, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis in, in uh, Abraham Lincoln, mm-hmm. you know, um, I personally, for me, just when you say my criterion, that's why it's such a personal thing. Mm-hmm. I think his work in Phantom Thread, for me, is more truthful, more emotional, has more depth, carries the film mm. more than him portraying right a known a- figure, Abraham Lincoln, mm-hmm. and putting on the makeup and the prosthetics, even though. That is really hard and a tour de force. I tend to, for me, like those parts a little bit, um, you know, less than something that hits me in the gut mm-hmm. emotionally mm-hmm. that you think, as a fellow actor, I know how difficult, you know, that was to do and to sustain it over, you know, you're making a movie in over mm-hmm. six weeks. Right. And to kind of sustain that. 
uh, you know, that, that rhythm and that, you know, personality. And then sometimes it's fun, you know, you just argue with people. I, you know, I keep talking about the, this movie Maudie and Sally Hawkins in Maudie, her work is, is like, you know, there's a scene in Maudie where after her, she has a fight with Ethan Hawke and he kicks her out and she's crippled and she's walking in the snow well like that scene for me that is the definition of she's not talking she's not doing anything I just that's the whole movie is Mm -hmm. like her pain and her fortitude and her spirit and I I love the movie I thought it was amazing so I find like the shape of water even though she's great in that movie well it kind of looks like a layup to me Mm. Mm-hmm. I don't really know why that is. She's still amazing. She's still great. But when I compare her performance in Maudie, where apparently from what I read, because she plays someone that was, you know, her whole body is hunched mm. over and she's, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, it was like, you know, that she really had to do a lot of physical therapy to wow. kind of right. get back. You know, I don't know, again, some of the mental things that had to to go into that, but that would me for me would be a great example. An interesting example is um, who got the Oscar nomination? Um, uh, Christopher Plummer for oh right. Like what? How did he get? Did he get it? Because was part of the criteria. Oh my God! He, he came had in. no time to prepare. He had no time to prepare, mm. and he came in and he killed. Uh, he was Maybe. amazing in the role. You Maybe. Know? Um, but it's always hard, you know, it's, it's always hard. It's such a personal. Well, yeah, I mean, because it seems to me like very often any of these voting bodies are very much, um, swayed by people who do the big transformations, have the prosthetic makeup or have the, you know, very different accent or have, um, you know, the, the, I don't I'm not sure if affectation is the right word, but the, you know, the, the putting on of something very different. And then there's also the category or the idea that John, you and I have talked about before with, um, this idea that playing something as an acting role that is very close to who you are or very subtle or very small. One of the great examples I have is, uh, Judy Dench and Mrs. Brown, mm-hmm. which I thought was an unbelievably brilliant performance. And it was so small. Right. And so subtle. And so such a, she she portrayed the the, you know, conveyed feelings in such a um, minuscule way mm-hmm. with giving you the gut punch, right. like you said. And, you know, I think there's almost something to be said for, you know, kind of doing it naked, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and really getting people to to connect, right? Your audience to connect, even though you're not, um, you know, doing all of these other. And some years, you things. know, you just have to say, you know, like Jack Nicholson in terms of endearment or something. Mm. You know, or Shirley MacLaine in terms of right. endearment. I just don't think anything could take away from Shirley MacLaine in terms mm-hmm. of endearment, you know, right. and sometimes it is. And I feel like the Oscars has moved a little bit away from that, you know, that not only it was a great performance, but it's it's transformational so that, you know, when Shirley MacLaine in that scene, you know, in the hospital where she's mm-hmm. get, trying to get her daughter the drugs, mm-hmm. you know, it is riveted in your mind. No one will ever do it better. That's right. That is the scene right you know the scene of a lifetime right um i think that that's when you feel the most 
kind of satisfied mm. in terms of an Oscar worthy performance, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. if yeah. if you if you can. But um I think we should bring in Brad. Yes, we should. Brad knows all about the Oscars with his uh, movie Monster. So let me talk to you a little bit about Brad Wyman, who's a a longtime friend. He is a producer best known for the films Monster, The Blitz, Barbed Wire, also a friend of our good friend, Adam Rifkin. He's also an Independent Spirit Award winner. Please welcome Brad Wyman. Hi, Brad. Nice to see you. Wow, what an introduction. Yes. Did I do good? You did good. I'm going to bring you everywhere. You know how I can tell you're, <laughs> you, here's how I can tell you're a real producer. Wow. Because when I parked my car, I saw you on your, in your car. You hadn't even gotten out of the car yet. You were like scrolling your phone and texting. And I said, yes, yeah, producer. Yeah, but it's, it's really an independent producer because I refused to pay for parking. So I had to get a <laughs> free parking space. What's the, what's the meanest? I, you know, I did a documentary called Everybody Just Stay Calm because one year, it was, you know, when we're going to talk about this independent film and its glory years. Like, May I just get out really quick how exquisite yeah. you are? What? Yeah, yeah, I just have to say that. So now I can, you know, go forward. You're the best. Thank you, Brad. That's very sweet. Um, but back on you. <laughs> uh, in that glory period where, you know, we were doing all these great movies and going up to Sundance and everything. Do you recall? And it, I did this movie called Everybody Just Stay Calm. And we we did this round table thing of of asking people like you know what's the meanest craziest thing and you know a producer was like well we had to make actors you know change on the street and uh you know martin scorsese was saying like you know we wouldn't let people have seconds in the food and you know just things like (laughs) do you do you have a recollection of just like even you are embarrassed at how cheap you had to be or you know probably too many (laughs) (laughs) i i do remember though shooting something in Rhode Island where Mario Van Peoples was uh, directing it. Yeah. I think it was a picture called uh, Hard Luck. Mm -hmm. And um, Wesley Snipes was the star. And we were standing there in the freezing, freezing cold. And it was absolutely, I mean, nobody could even move. And everyone was turning to me like, should we go home or should we try to work and get the last shots or what should we do? And so, you know, I just kind of like pushed everyone and said, you know, cold is cold, but, you know, bond companies are bond companies and let's get it done and let's rally. And I'll never forget the Mario turning to me and goes, you know, Brad, no matter how cold it is, no matter how bad it is, you know, we're making movies. We could be cutting sandwiches somewhere in a line at a cafeteria. Yeah. That's true. It's never that bad when you're on a movie set. No, I always feel that way too. Sometimes you can get in these great, like, uh, you know, uh, the biggest fights I've ever been in in my life have been about a movie. Right. You know, like that are, seem, you know, where you get so dug in about the shot or where the camera should be placed. Things like, do you have any recollections like that? Like, Oh, I have gosh, and, uh, just to give you an example. When I did this movie, Grace of Heart, Grace of My Heart, and we again sure. we were running out of time. You were great in it, by the way. Why? Thank you. And we were running out of time, and there was not going to be enough time for a single of me. And I'm the lead of the film, and we were trying to on the spot 
changed the scene because the location had changed and it was actually John Turturro I think who came up with this idea because there was a window and the window led to the roof that in a sense we would have our own traveling shot and that he would (laughs) open the window walk out Sure. I'd kind of favor the camera. He'd be out. He'd come back in, and and it was it's a great scene. And you know, and we never had to pop in. Like you know, we we did the thing in one take, and it ends up being great. But did you, do you find? Well, it's just you know, there's always hard moments. I always time. Yeah. Well, I I mean, I I remember with our dear friend Adam Rifkin, you know, as we're way behind schedule on the chase, mm-hmm. a picture we made. Um, you know, figuring out which pages we were just going to rip out of the script. And, I mean, you know, that's rough on everybody. Um, I was always kind of like the uh, producer, though, that, you know, one of the movies, I really just wanted them to be made as well as possible. Yeah. So I was never really the most responsible. <laughs> like, so you go a little over, so you do a little more, yeah. you know, as many paintbrushes as you could give the filmmaker was always my saying. You know? Right. Let so them succeed. Yeah. So you're the one who's hiding from the executive. Yeah, the, usually they'd have to send someone always in. You know, yeah. oh, we got to control Brad again. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we're going to go back to back. Uh, back, back, back to my favorite question, of course. Do you remember the first movie you saw and who took you to see it? I think I remember. It was a, a family friend, um, mm-hmm. but I, I believe it was Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Okay, that's and a good one. Was Scar- at- like, scary? Or? No, I loved it. It was uh-huh. at the Chinese Theater. And I remember, like, going back every weekend for Uh about a month. To see it? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I just loved it so much. It was just so big and fantastic and flying cars. Oh, incredible. Yeah, bigger than life for a young three- or four-year-old or however old I was. And did you go out in the – and so did you get a sense? Like, did you want to be in show business? Was your family Uh, in show business? They weren't, um, but – I did grow up in Los Angeles, so there were obviously other families that were, so yeah. somehow you could figure your way on to uh, working. But I don't remember exactly what point, um, mm. you know, I realized that uh, somebody made these yeah. movies, <laughs> you know, somebody actually was behind it. Yeah, and, that's and, an amazing yeah. revelation. And that could be a job, <laughs> you know, and it was like, wow, <laughs> I'm in, you know, <laughs> and quickly figuring out that one could not act, write, or direct, that there was this job called producer. Right. And I said, oh, well, that just even sounds like something I could do. It sounds like yeah. you don't have to know anything. <laughs> <laughs> did were you did you follow like Jack Warner or any of the great David Selznick oh, or well everyone I mean I you know when I had made that decision I definitely became uh, as literate in every biography as possible uh-huh. I guess the first hero was Thalberg yeah you know I mean it was like wow Boy he, genius yeah it seems like he really figured it out and and uh, read everything I could about him. Empire of the Jews is a really great one, too, if you know that one. I've heard of it. Who wrote that book? Uh, I wish I knew, but it's really good, and it covers everybody. And, uh, you know, I mean, I love Scott Berg's, too, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, Goldwyn book. That's Mm -hmm. just brilliant. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I... uh, I did try to, you know, educate myself not only into the history of Hollywood as much as I could and read everything I could about um, uh, the forerunners of the industry and the people that created the industry, but then also really tried to become as um, film um, 
just trying to see as many movies as I could and, you mm-hmm. know, trying to get as film literate as possible. So right. I really, you know, knew what was in front of me. Well, it's interesting. It's not until you get older that you actually realize that all these studios, Goldwyn, Warner, MGM, Columbia, do in fact have a look, yeah. Paramount. Sure, know? sure, sure. There um, was absolutely a feel to each picture. Do you have a favorite? Like for me, it's Warner Brothers. They're sort of my favorite. They're kind of raggedy. And- yeah, I mean, you know, I, I can't say I do because I love certain films from each studio in yeah. its beginning period. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I can't really say I do. You know, I, I, I equally loved all of the forerunners of the industry. Yeah. A Paramount romantically is my favorite lot. Yeah. And the that, gates still. That's the best. Yeah, it's no. like, you know, that's a, that's a fun one. Um, and so then did you go to film school? Um, I didn't. Uh, I I did start working as soon as I was able, mm-hmm. uh, anywhere I could in pictures. I remember my first job was for a famous uh, a TV producer named Hugh Benson, mm-hmm. lovely man, and he had nothing for me to do, you know. <laughs> so he like pushed me on to. Uh, uh, I was on the uh, Warner Brothers lot at the time, um, but I think that was even Columbia at that point. But. Uh-huh. And I remember I was my first real job was I was a PA on Fantasy Island. Wow. Which was fabulous. I mean, I was 16, and it was yeah. a summer kind of job, and I was hanging around Lava Lava Girls and learning, you know, all these uh, new guest stars every day. And hey, hanging like, out who'd with... you see? Did you see Hervé Villachez? Oh, yeah. Ricardo? Ricardo. Ricardo, what an elegant, lovely man. Aw. The, the best. And I did mean... they think it was schlocky, or did they think it was, like, really cool? I think they were having fun. Yeah. I think they all knew it was fun, and it was so successful. Yeah. But but it was actually, as a you know person going into film production, an incredible job because every week was like a whole new new movie. You know, right, seven right. days, seven yeah. day board. You know, uh, new cast coming on. You know, new breakdown, and it was really quite a fun education. Um, then, though, uh, as I continued to just PA or doing whatever I can. Uh, I did go to NYU, mostly because mm-hmm. I just wanted to be in New York right? and uh, stayed quite a while after, but uh, did, didn't did major in film. I was an English major just because I liked to read mm-hmm. and um, work, though, on everything I possibly could while yeah. I was there. I mean, you know, there were student films my uh, around all the uh, filmmakers there. There were films in the city being shot, and I continued to PA all the way through uh, school. Uh, until when I graduated, I realized calling myself a producer would do a lot better at parties. <laughs> if you're a PA, you're just, you know, not going to get anywhere. Yeah. So I called myself a producer and, and really started making movies when I was right out of school, 20, 21 years old. So you didn't move up to like second AD. You went no. from PA to... Producer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the funny thing was is, is uh, you know, I learned very quickly a really great lesson and because um, people ask all the time what a producer does. Yeah, well, you're gonna, we're going to get to that. Yeah, well, rule number one is very simple. You know, get the money. Right. Rule number two is never forget to get the money. <laughs> and rule number three is always remember to never forget to get the money. <laughs> now, once you know that, you're a producer. Right. And once you accomplish that, you're a producer. Now, being a good producer is something different. Yeah. There's plenty of guys out there getting the money right. that aren't good producers. I mean, that's picking good material and surrounding yourself with the most talented 
talented people and even marketing and distribution. But if you can get the money, you can produce. Right. And um, right out of school, it was a far uh, different industry. There were 20, 30, maybe even 40 places that actually financed movies and even distributed movies. Right. So you had an opportunity just to run around like crazy and try to raise a few million dollars here and there. Yeah. And I was fortunate enough to uh, hook up with a classical film producer named Elliot Kastner and Mm -hmm. uh, worked uh, uh, with him on a book that was um, adapted by Donald Camel. Mm-hmm. And it was called White of the Eye, and it starred at the time of very hot David Keith and Kathy Moriarty. And I produced my first picture when I was 21 years old. And what did you learn from that experience? That I knew nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought producing because I, you know, I did done my share of low level producing. Stop! You produced many things, but mainly it's listening to people like scream at you and complain. Well, you know, I I, I knew what producing was. Fortunately, you know, just because of being a PA and stuff, and I worked on short films too and stuff. And yeah. I always said on short films, the job of the producer is to make sure the pizza's there on time. No, I was going to say <laughs> one of the number one, make sure the. Food because you got nothing to do on the set you know they send you off to get the food that's you know we're talking about revelations of being on set my for my number one revelation is like what happens to people that they get on a movie set and they need to eat there's this constant they need to eat no the crew has to eat after five hours i'm like there's no there's no job like it that there's a craft service out (laughs) 24 7 and you break every five hours in london you have tea what about every every time i do a movie now they go do, do, do you want water? Do you need water? Right. I'm like, I'm not in a desert. I'm actually on the set of Entourage. We're okay. Yeah. No, I was so young on White of the Eye. And I mean, <laughs> I I knew nothing. Um, so what I was your first up, crisis as a producer? Um, David Keith wanted to reshoot something. Okay. And you, you, you know, and we, we, yeah, we, it was 24 days, you know. <laughs> and of course, you know, I don't know what to do. We're going to get there, David. <laughs> we're going to get there, you know, we're going to get there. And, you know, and as we got closer to closer to closer to the end of the shoot, you yeah. know, he would just be looking at me with these beady eyes. I'm, we're going to get there, David. And no, we didn't get there, you know, but um, he forgave me. He and did. I, and I actually brought him into the editing room and we cut the scene. He really wanted to shoot shoot right and he looked at it and was okay with it so i felt a little relieved although there was no doubt um the the um parable of kind of like bending the truth a bit you know was surely uh explored on that first movie when it came to we're gonna reshoot that (laughs) um i want to ask you another question producer i once interviewed rj cutler Mm -hmm. his thing about producing is he goes you tell the same two lies Oh, I have the money. I just need access. I have the access. I just need the money. Right. You know, and that's sort of what I feel like it's, you know, is with the stars. Like, oh, yeah, I have him. I just need the money. I have the money. I just need the stars. It's a magic trick every time. I mean, it really is. I mean, you jump off of a high board into an empty swimming pool and you hope (laughs) that that water's there before you hit. Right. Because you're juggling all these elements and hope that they all hit at the same time and the money appears. Yeah. Well, that's that's crisis number one. Then crisis number Number two, another producer uh, named Hank Blumenthal talked about being, he described producing as being behind enemy lines, right. <laughs> you know, and you, you just have to get, you know, like once you're in production. Yeah, no, I mean, I always found uh, 
it a blessing every time you were shooting, though. I mean, even when it, something bad happens. Yeah, I mean, sort it was. Of laugh a, about it. Yeah, ultimately, it's not brain surgery. Yeah, we're making movies, you know, and and I Mario's great line, you know. I mean, here we are, right? And we could be cutting sandwiches in a cafeteria somewhere for a living, and yeah. you know, we're making a movie. Yeah, that's true. Although some of the little bit of the romance has gone out of it a little bit. Now, what did you learn from Elliot Kasner as a? Oh, uh, he, Adam mentioned him also. <laughs> Just yeah. a colorful. Well, he, an extraordinary producer too, and and you know the producer, by the way, is you know the most forgotten person as they should be. Yeah, you know the filmmakers are the filmmakers, and the stars are on screen, and we're really just the glue standing behind. But Elliot produced a number of fabulous movies, you know, Angel Heart and Where Eagles Dare and Harper, and I mean I could go on and on, Equus. Um, but Elliot, uh, you know, I mean, besides all of his colorful phrases, I mean, the stick that was necessary to never say no, mm-hmm. to never take no for an answer, I should say, excuse me, and mm-hmm. to keep going and energy and persistence. And, um, you know, nobody uh, ever would make you believe more that you could get anything done as right. long as you believed it. Yeah. And so, you know, that would be the most valuable lesson that, you know, I learned from truly probably my greatest influence in terms of education-wise. Mm-hmm. I made many pictures with Elliot. Um, and then you also worked with Steve Buscemi. On yes. Trees Lounge. Yes, yes, yeah. No, um, Steve's directoral debut. Um, yeah. And I, I love Steve, adored Steve, and um, he's become a much bigger star now than he was then. Isn't that funny? Yeah, no, he was really the fifth or sixth character actor in a movie, but yeah. always rememberable. And he had written this beautiful script called Trees Lounge, and um, he'd spent years trying to get it funded, and he couldn't get it funded. And he came in my um, office completely frustrated. You could tell it's like, oh. Another producer, you know, another load of beans. And that was actually one that really worked out. You know, I mean, we found a little company. It was called Live Entertainment at the Mm -hmm. time. And they gave us, you know, a a commitment based on delivering some cast. And everybody loved Steve. And everybody wanted to work for Steve. And we delivered the cast. And we shot really a good picture. Um, What was interesting for me, though, to talk about that and and, uh, uh, different you know, uh, philosophies is when you're shooting in New York on an independent little movie like that, Mm -hmm. I mean, you're plugging in. There are no, you know, electrical generators. Right. You know, there's no big honey wagons or or motorhomes. And, you know, Steve had such a reach and so many actors wanted to work with him. I never forget walking into this little church, which was the holding space for the actors, mm-hmm. where we just put up these little partitions with little curtains on them, you know, and there was Alec Baldwin reading his <laughs> lines next to Sam Jackson reading his lines next to Chloe Sevigny reading their lines, you know, all sitting there with no frills whatsoever and yeah. all excited to work. That's amazing. Yeah. And that really is, for me, that era is, and you were at Sundance with Trees Lounge. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think was we want something fir- there. Yeah, I've done a few pictures by then, you know. I, I we, yeah, I've done probably and then a dozen. Talk a little dozens. bit about like because people, you know, when you go to Sundance now, it's such it's such a different kind of a thing. But in those days, it was already happening then. You but know? wasn't it, I always feel like what if, what year was this roughly? 
Trees Lounge. I bad. want to sorry. Jeez, make me look bad. <laughs> mid mid nineties. Don't ask me my kids' birthdays either, please. <laughs> it's like the you know I'm gonna guess and say mid. It, it had mid-90s. already started getting pretty commercial by then. Um, 1996. Oh, yeah, that's pretty good. I well think done. That falls in. Yeah. Well, that's because those were my Sundance years. And yeah, you know, I mean, I was you'd never. You go to Sundance, you'd be in like five films. Yeah, you know? like, yeah. You know, I, uh, I, uh, it was always cold. Yes. <laughs> it was always cold, and you know, you never knew what to do with your jackets and your shoes. And I always remember, no matter how young Sundance was or how fun Sundance, me just trying to get in and out of there as fast as possible. I remember my memories of Sundance are, it's kind of like, because now when I go, if I'm lucky enough to be invited, it's with a film (laughs) and a publicist, and it's all like first class all the way. But like in my day, it would be like, you know, you'd wake up next to two or three people (laughs) in a condo. Well, (laughs) let's not go there, Liana. I meant that in the nice... Wasn't that last weekend? (laughs) (laughs) I meant that in the... And usually Mark Tusk was involved somehow. (laughs) That's funny. That's such an Side joke. Very, very. Uh, uh, the lovely uh, Mark Tusk. Um, but yeah, like all of our, it was like you'd see the same people, you know, part yeah. of, that we well, were all making movies. Independent together. Features has obviously changed. Yes. Enormously. I mean, as I said, when I started, you know, way back, if you want to look up Wide of the Eye, <laughs> um, yes, thank you. You know, there was 40 places to go fund movies that back actually also distributed them. Yeah. You know, Atlantic, New Line, New World, you know, Vestron, you can name them all. And, you know, now we're down. 87. 87. So 87. You know, there was an enormous chance to make independent features and make features at every level. I mean, little movies like Rocky, they were made for a million bucks, you know, came out theatrically. They'd probably be straight to Netflix now. And, you know, the... The world's changed so much. I mean, we're really down to four or five distributors. I know. That's what's crazy is like if you had an indie film, there there mm-hmm. was many, many, you know. Opportunities. Now there's four yeah. or five places that actually put movies in theaters, maybe crazy. six or seven if you add some of the peripheral players. Right. Uh, new people are coming along, you know, Netflix and Amazons and sorts. But, you know, really it's truncated. And mm-hmm. it's probably why television's become so good. You know, when yeah. I started, there were three TV stations. That was it. ABC, right. It wasn't even Fox. Yeah. ABC, CBS, and NBC. Now there's, you know, 60. Mm-hmm. And so you get a variety of really unique and great work. And a lot of independent feature film people are really working in television. And, you know, things like Breaking Bad to me you know, Mm -hmm. or six feet under, you Mm -hmm. know, those were the kind of movies I made. Right. They're now just on cable or on, um, uh, uh, digital or whatever you would want to call it. And, you know, there's really, really exciting work going on there. They, they are just for me, just because I'm a movie purist. I, I just personally like, you know, some people like a Sonata versus, some an opera. I like oh, the narrative of a film. I, I who doesn't? Why. I mean, that's just me. I live. I in like these... a dark theater too. It, yeah. I mean, I love a movie theater. I like I, a two-hour narrative that has a peak and then you have a resting period. Be nice if there'd be two hours too, rather than two hours and forty. <laughs> well, that's true. Everything was ninety minutes. Now everything is like two hours and forty. But yeah. no, we're, we're I, 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 I'm right with you. I mean, you know, the magic of motion pictures will never end. Um, for me, and I love a dark theater. Um, 
I, uh, I love showing films, even if they're in our home big screen to my kids and making sure all the phones are off and yeah. they're watching it, you know, properly beginning to end. There's not a Christmas that goes by where they don't watch uh, uh, It's a Wonderful Life with me. Yeah. They're bored to death of it. At this point, my 14 and 16 year old boys, but Christmas Eve, they know. See, they'll remember. One day I'll be interviewing them, asking them, what was the first movie? If it's a baseball show, maybe. Dad, <laughs> show you. Do you have a favorite baseball movie? Oh, boy. You know, I love uh, so many good baseball movies. So many um, good ones. Uh, you know, I probably have to go Bull Durham. I mean, oh, really? I probably do. What about The Natural? I love The Natural. I love the natural. I love it's the a natural. beautiful movie, and I love it. But but I, I, cinematic. I really love Bull Durham. It's Bull Durham. charming and sexy, and it's... You know, it's actually got a lot to do with baseball. <laughs> you yeah. know, you can teach Bull people. Durham's great film. Yeah, a really good. Film. Do you consider Bad News Bears a baseball film? Oh, of course. Uh, that's, and that's I, right up there, too. That's my, I love that movie. Amazing. Anything Walter Matthau, too. That's I mean, true. I mean, there is no current Walter Matthau, is there? Or Jack Lemmon. Or well, I don't Some think, of these archetypes. I don't know if you'll ever have a... Walter Matthau, you know? Yeah, he was Before very, or beginning or ever, he was so unique. Yeah, he was. Um, okay, and I want to ask you now about a phrase that you said. You talked about band-aiding films. Oh, gosh. Now, what, is that, what does that mean to band-aid a film? Well, I mean... Fellow producers listening. Yeah, if you're, you know, making movies and this goes, you know, to this day. Right. Um it's rare that Mr. Paramount comes to you and says, here's $50 million for a movie, or here's $5 million, or here's $2 million, or right. anybody in that series. So you're really piecing together the financing. Okay. And um, that can include tax deals, you know, where you right. get a portion from a state. Like um, New Mexico. Sure. What are the current states? Uh, I wish I was up on them. You should have Steve Ranselhoff from oh. Film Finances. He's the oh, best okay. at that. He can just, he's the bond guy. He knows them what all. Happened? Oklahoma, I hear, is very good right now. Okay, so here's the, my question. Why is it like one year Michigan and then it disappears? Well, I mean, I think ultimately it's probably not really an advantage bringing movies to a state. They all think that will create oh, some sort of pocket industry, and, and it really the, doesn't. And then the movie comes in and- well, I mean, they don't just rape it because, you know, yeah, you get money back and you're renting hotels and you're, you know, right. using local people. But it's not really creating an industry in, in, right. in that town. Um, it kind of did in Texas where it started, you know, which is where Austin and, and you know, there was a little mm-hmm. industry. So everybody keeps thinking they'll replicate it. Um, I don't think states really get hurt by it. Uh, I think, though whatever their grand ambitions for creating, you know, hundreds and hundreds of ongoing jobs. Right. It's really picture by picture. And, um, but tax deals, you would band-aid with maybe a foreign sale from a territory. Or what does that mean? Again, just well, so explain. I mean, you know, just like is that there's a the United. Yeah, that's like when people. That's like when we hear people go to Cannes yeah. and they pre-sale. So explain to people what that means. Well, it's no difference than getting a deal from Paramount, but right. you have you know five or six different distributors in Korea and Argentina and Italy and England, and right. they might pre-buy your movie. Uh-huh. You know before goes as long as you deliver the elements and you can take that movie with your tax that deal with the tax deal and 
maybe get some bank gap or maybe get a civilian in there or maybe get a little domestic financing. I mean, you're just never really dealing, as I'm saying, with one person. And when somebody pre-buys your movie, is that all on paper? It's not like they put... It's monopoly money. They don't put... They don't give... What about... You might get an advance. You might get an advance against it, but you take that paper to a bank. Right. And they give you a loan. And they give you the cash. Got it. Mm -hmm. I love it. And has anyone ever taken the cash and just like left and gone to Vegas? Probably lots of people. I just always... (laughs) (laughs) Probably lots of people. (laughs) All right. That was... Okay. Let's talk about now our friend Adam Rifkin. How did you meet Adam Rifkin? Um, He's getting a lot of play on this show. I sure hope so. I hope Adam's picture really explodes too. He made a beautiful little movie with uh, Burt Reynolds. Burt Reynolds. Yeah. I can't wait to see it. Really good. Uh, I saw it. Um, Adam, uh, I had made Whitey the Eye. Yeah. And I was sitting in my office and I was looking for new scripts. And a friend of mine, good screenwriter and a good uh, uh, novelist as well, John Lau, was reading for a small company. Because we all have to do jobs to pay the rent before we sell something. And he said, Brad, you got to read this. So uh, he sent over a script called The Dark Backward. Right. And um, it's a movie we ended up making years later about a guy that grew a third arm out of the middle of his back. And <laughs> I loved the script, and I loved the uh, not only the originality to it, but the classical nature of it. And so um, there was a phone number at the bottom of it, and I called the phone number, and this very officious lady answers the phone and you know says, uh, who's speaking? And I said, this is Brad Wyman. I'm a motion picture producer. I'm looking for Adam Rifkin. And then I quickly realized it was his mother because she screams, Adam! <laughs> Not like, his secretary. It was like King of Comedy. Yeah. And he's he comes, in the basement. He comes running to the phone Aww. and we talk and he comes in and he looks exactly the same. You know, ponytail and glasses and, and, and we had a very good meeting and I told him how much I liked it and, you know, said I, you know, really don't have anything to offer except my energy to try to fund the picture. Mm. And, um, he said, well, thank you, and, you know, drove back in this broken-down car to his mother's uh, house and uh, called a couple of days later and passed. <laughs> and I wrote him a little note, right, saying, oh, Adam, it's a pleasure meeting you, you know, longhand, and saying, I'm sure your future will be anything but dark or backward. And he came back in a few days later with the same Converse shoes and said, my mother said maybe I should reconsider. Really? And he must have been 18 at the time. I was 22. Um, We didn't get that movie made at first, but he asked, uh, so if we can't get this made right away, what can we do? And I said, Mm -hmm. well, write something really cheap, Adam. And he said, what does that mean? I say, one location, three actors. And he wrote a little script called Never on Tuesday, mm-hmm. which we did fund and we did make and then went on to make Dark Backward. And I think Adam and I have probably done seven or eight pictures together. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, any conflicts between you or are you yin and yang? Um, yeah, besides when I stole all his money. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, we're great friends. He's godfather to my kids. I Aww. mean, um you know, but not- that's very rare. That I tell people, and I only found it very recently. I've I've had it like once or twice in my life. A relationship with a producer who is not 
two-faced and really supports you is very, very rare. I, I, I mean, you That's hate That's the to, hardest thing to find. You hate to toot your own horn, but, you know, mostly they come back to me. Um, I'm really... Um, I, I view my job to do as much as I can just to help them. Mm-hmm. I mean... I'm not a director. I don't call the shots. I don't recut the picture. I don't rewrite. You know, I have opinions and hope they at least listen. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's their film. And I really try to do everything I can to preserve their opportunity to make the best picture possible. Mm-hmm. So, you know, usually the filmmakers, you know, enjoy that experience. And when you're pitching Adam, like what would be, or at anyone, like when you're pitching someone for money, like what, I mean, I'm, you know, what, what are some of the things you say to pry open a wallet? (laughs) Just lie. Uh, Yeah, no. uh, This guy's the next greatest. Elliot used to, you know, never sell to like uh, uh, what's going to happen. He said, you want to giddy up? You know, you want to have some fun? He said, no, we don't worry about how we're going to recoup our investment. We just hold our balls and jump into the cold water. (laughs) (laughs) And people go, sign me up. Here's a bill. I mean, you know, he knows who he's dealing with. Uh, I remember one one can where we're all trying to, like, uh, 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 rub up against the big agents and up against the big producers. And there's Elliot, like, in the corner sitting somewhere with a guy with a big mole on his nose, you know, and... And, and, you know, we're going, Elliot, why aren't you schmoozing, you know, the studio heads? And he go, that's the head of Federal Express, Brad, or that's the head of Fruit of the Loom, <laughs> you know? And, and it, it does show, though, true, that you don't need, you know, yeah. anyone's blessing to make a movie. You just need money. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter if who says it or who does it. As long as you can properly fund it, you can make a picture. Yeah, I have found that the one interesting breakup of independent films is there's so many movies I've done with like, oh, he owns parking lots, (laughs) but he just is a fan of yours and he wants to do a movie. Like You want a giddy up. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you get to stand on the set and instead of take parking lot tickets and hang out with someone as talented and elegant as you. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Well, I often tell the story. I told the story in my book the, that, you know, I got the Ikea show because they said, if right. you can get Jeff Goldblum in an Ikea, we'll give you the money. Exactly. I was like, I'm, I'm in. I'll yeah. make it. Ha- I'll make it. Ha- somehow I'll make it. I'll make it happen. Did you? Anything? Maybe the Walter Matthau of our generation, Jeff Goldblum. He is, isn't he talented? He's amazing. He's become almost too like uh, a Hollywood royalty. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I think so. And well deserved. And 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 the and varied kind of parts. And he looks so good. And he's so healthy. Yeah, he'll have a great kind of third act. Okay, how did you get involved with Barbed Wire and Pamela Anderson? <laughs> I'm just curious. Yeah, no, I don't blame you. That's like a genre. Would you call it's that? Like, a, I call it my worst movie ever made. (laughs) Well, everyone needs their Pluto Nash. But by the way, that was the most fun to fund out of any of them. Um, I was officing at uh, Tony Bill's studio, you know, on Market Street. Yeah, I know him. And I was just officing there. And next door was a group called Dark Horse Comics. Uh And they had had big success. They'd done two pictures, The Mask and Time Cop. And they had this giant uh, display of comic books. You know, left and right. And I kept walking by it, and you kept seeing barbed wire, and I kept just looking at Pam Anderson. And she was sizzling hot at the time. 
And uh, uh, I said, why don't uh, you guys let me try to get Pam Anderson, and if we get her, we'll produce it together. And she um, jumped at it, actually. Once we got through her representative, she was dying to... She got It's a permanent tattoo. She put barbed yeah. wire on her arm. I think she started a trend. Yeah. I mean, she was the first. Um, and Pam was so hot, um, we had hooked up with a, a, a company that, you know, pretty much had it funded. But what they did do is they took us all to Cannes. Uh-huh. And Pam, in her full barbed wire clad uh, outfit, you know, walking down the quasette. I mean, people were throwing money at us. Yeah. I mean, boats were crashing into <laughs> each other. It was really <laughs> phenomenal. And uh, I love it. So that was really fun to finance. But um, unfortunately, you know, it just didn't quite turn out like it was supposed to. <laughs> That's so funny, but it uh, but it has the 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 look. And you know, the funny thing is, is we're sitting here talking. I bet there are fans out there that would line up at Comic Con. Right. There's probably more fans of barbed wire. Yeah. You know. I, I I don't remember who was the bad guy in the process and who took over the film from all of us and who decided we need more nudity and oh. who decided to reshoot scenes, you know, with hoses shooting at her. But <laughs> the Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Which, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the original script, believe it or not, was Casablanca. Yeah. And she was, you know, running the bar and had the letters of transit, you know, yeah. to get you know, the good guys out. And it played as such a wonderful straight spoof. And there's not a remnant of it, <laughs> you know, in the It's so interesting. In so were you going more for like a Roger Corman type movie or no? No, I mean, we were just, we just figured we'd play it really, really straight. Right. And then people would get the joke. Right. You know, rather than trying to wink at the camera or trying to be silly. Yeah. Um, but, you know, whoever we were working for didn't get the joke. Oh, I see. <laughs> and so it kind of got shifted around. All right. Well, uh, now we're, we're going to shift from that, from barbed wire to monster. Oh, what a good segue. Well <laughs> <Yeah>. done. <laughs> so you go Brilliant. <laughs> So after you did barbed wire, did you go, I need to be involved with something classy. No. How did Monster come to you? You know, and and God knew how it turned out so classy. A lady named Patty Jenkins is the reason, and yeah. good for her. And you know, Wonder Woman, such a lovely movie. And uh, I must admit, uh, probably one of the best humans I've ever worked with. Uh-huh. Just a sensational person. Um, I was doing a thing at the American Film Institute, mm-hmm. which was called AFI Kodak Connect, uh-huh. and it was kind of like speed dating. They had a producer on one table, director of photography at another table, and a studio executive at one, and an agent at one. Yeah. And, and then they had like a whole bunch of students, and you got like 10, sec- 10 minutes, and they rang a bell, and they all moved around. And uh, Patty was the last one that I met, actually, in the day, right? And um, she's just such an exquisite lady, you know, you can't help but notice, mm-hmm. you know, she's so powerful and beautiful and smart. And she said, I really wanted to meet you. And I was, like, laughing, too, because I was, like, the schlepper in the room. I mean, everyone else had, like, credits and, you know, were (laughs) AFI board members or whatever. She said, no, because you get movies made. I said, well, thank you. It's very sweet, you know. Um, And really, I I couldn't believe that she was that sincere about it. And also, after having, like, ten kids saying, how do you get an agent? It was really refreshing for her to ask the question, how do I get my movie made? Right. 
you know, it wasn't how do I break into Hollywood or what are my steps? It's like, I got a script and I Mm -hmm. want to make a movie. And um, she hadn't finished it yet, Mm -hmm. but she uh, had made one picture at AFI and um, she gave me the DVD and she said she wanted to make a story of Eileen Wernow. So I said, Mm -hmm. who? And she said she's a female serial killer. And I said, oh, you know, you got a shot, you know, in yeah. the small budget world. And she said, and, you know, her last relationship was with a woman who ended up turning state's evidence on it. And I said, oh, a lesbian serial killer movie. That's my genre. You're <laughs> at the right table. <laughs> but once again, you can see, though, how a movie, you know, might not transcend and be classy. I mean, you know, the concept of a lesbian serial killer movie right, right. could be as low rent as possible. Um, so I just said, hey, Patty, if you write it, I'll read it. Mm-hmm. Showed up a few weeks later, dropped off the script, knocked on the door and said, you said, you know, read it, you know, write it. And, you know, I read it and I don't think we changed a word, frankly. Wow. I mean, I really don't. Maybe a little bit here and there, but surely not much. Maybe mm-hmm. some production stuff for what we found. She wanted to shoot in Florida. And um, what we did was um, I partnered with a guy named Donald Kushner, Mm -hmm. and uh, Donald had a little bit of money to fund the uh, uh, casting or just to see how we could do. And uh, the script actually, uh, Alana, it became instantly received, Mm -hmm. and that never happens. Right. I mean, you know, it's the wink, yeah, you got the money, no, you don't got the money, and then some of the people know if they put their actors in it, they probably will have the money. Right. But everybody wanted to do it. I mean, every young, fabulous actress you could think of wanted to be in it. I said, like, any Kate will do, you know, Kate Winslet, Kate, you know, uh, Beckinsale, you know, they all wanted to do it. And Patty wanted Charlize, Mm -hmm. plain and simple. She said, I want Charlie's. And I said, but Panny, we can raise this money and be shooting in six weeks. And she's like uh, sleeping on her like ex-boyfriend's couch with a broken arm because she'd like gotten hit by a car, you know, and just like, no, I, you know, I'm saying, Patty, we can pay you. We can be yeah. making this movie. You know, we have all these actors. And she says, well, look, it's not that I won't make the movie with them, but I want to hear from Charlize. Mm. And for whatever reasons, we couldn't really get an answer from Charlize. And I think enough agents actually called her representation to say, would you just pass? <laughs> you know, so, you know, we can get the part for our actor. And Charlize said yes after she met Patty and, you know, um, uh, really, the rest was simple, you know. I mean, we got the picture funded very quickly, and um, we shot it all in Florida. Um, mm-hmm. It was uh, then picked up uh, for release by New Market, which was a very clever distributor, now kind of running Amazon, named mm-hmm. Bob Burney. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Charlie's March to the Oscars propelled it, and... You know, that changes exploitation to artsploitation. Yeah. You know, suddenly when you're getting awards and winning Spirits Awards and winning SAG Awards and winning Best Pictures, you made an art film, mm-hmm. you know, rather than a lesbian serial killer movie. Right. Well, and what do you think it was about the movie that made it not uh, an exploitation? Is it is it her performance? Is it getting it in her head? Is it the idea that... She's a woman. I, I couldn't tell you, you know, what the magic... There's a kind of a desperation about, you know, and about... I, I don't... I mean, I, really, I'll, I'll, I'll lay it on Patty, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, Patty would sit there and look in the camera and look in the monitor and really say, you know, did that feel truthful? Mm-hmm. Did that feel true to you, Brad? And, you know, she kept always searching for the greater truth. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and I think, you know, that's what that movie rings to people. It doesn't ring sensational. It doesn't ring mm-hmm. uh, 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 exploitive. It rings true. Yeah. And I think that's ultimately Patty's gift and the attraction for its success. I Yeah, I agree. It falls into the category of uh, movies like uh, Badlands yes. or In Cold Blood. No, thank you. God, that's a heck of a group to put it in. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Where that, that desolation, it, it's very... It's very American. Yeah. And, and, you know, the people that are forgotten. Roger Ebert really helped that picture. You oh, know, he did, God though. The him. great Roger Ebert. Yeah, really helped that picture. Gave it a love letter. And um, I remember watching the top 10 countdown for the year because mm-hmm. he loved it so much. And it was at about five or four. I just stopped watching because, you know, well, it's not possible, you know. Yeah. And he named it that year his favorite movie of the year. Wow. And, you know, he named it the number one movie of the year. And yeah. he was, you know, still quite, you know, um, powerful and respected. And that quote really helped us. Mm-hmm. So when you went to the Oscars, like, did you have movies that you wanted to do after that? or? You know, the thing about a producer is it never gets in. You just go back to... You go right back to, you know, rule number one. You know, (laughs) they don't back the producer, you know. They back your next package. Right. So it never gets easier in that sense. Yeah. Unless you jump onto something that can spawn sequels. I see. Because then they'll come to you for... You know, another Caped Crusader movie, you know, or Fast and Furious 9, or Mm -hmm. then you have a little bit of clout. But otherwise, it's up to the next script and your next package and your next group of talent. Uh So you're always hustling. So, and then around this, you got into crowdfunding a little bit, too. Yes. And you were were at the beginning of crowdfunding. I loved it. I I, um, worked uh, hand-in-hand with Indiegogo which had just started. I yep. was probably one of their first employees, if mm-hmm. not their first, and um, really kind of started their film division. And it was really great because it was rule number one and two and three, Right. but you didn't have to ask the studios or the parking lot attendant. You just went straight to the audience. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, it was the democratization of financing. Um, I think it's found its way now, too. It's mostly, you know, working very well still for documentaries and right. things that, you know, are really off the beaten track that don't have places for financing. And um, any new formula to help make your and my dream and love, you know, yeah. to get things in that cinema uh, was something worth standing behind and working for. I've certainly participated in a lot that have to do with film restoration, yes. which I'm thrilled about. Yeah, it's there's great there. no money for film restoration. Restoration. Anytime I can do, you know, anything. So I've Kino Lorber and some other places, uh, you know, to, sure. to preserve our history. So what are you and what are you working on now? Oh, you know, a number of things. Yes, you in know. the hopper. Where do you see movies going? Like, what you know, aside from the, we've got the Black Panther phenomenon. And- well, I think they're going to continue probably to be giant event pictures. Yeah. You know, um, I uh, uh, think the pictures have to service the giant multiplexes just the way it's made now. And mm-hmm. it's going to be... You know, bearer and bearer for right. really the movies that I love the most, mm-hmm. which I really can just put into a category of unique. Yeah. You know, if something's different, 
I'm attracted to it, something mm-hmm. that I feel I haven't seen before or something that hits your collective subconscious that, wow, that's fresh. Right. But, um, you know, I, I, I am, you know, not a, uh, uh, against, I'm not a, a, a negative sayer to the digital revolution. I'm not a negative sayer that people can still make movies and watch them at home and mm-hmm. people can still make entertainment that way. I uh, uh, think that there are some great tools that were never available when I started making movies at 16. I was gluing Super 8 film together and putting a little scotch tape on it. Now you can practically shoot Star Wars on your phone if you know right. enough. Yeah. And maybe someday somebody will, you know, right in their garage. So, you know, rather than talk about the industry, I'd like to talk about um, uh, uh, the positive steps that young filmmakers, you know, have <coughs> mm-hmm. to really make movies right and really make cool movies and make them when they're young and experiment and become great filmmakers and out of that hopefully it will dictate a new future or a different future um my 14 year old son you know made an animation movie you know a claymation movie and i mean the idea of that happening when i was his age was near impossible I mean, it really was. I mean, and the way he could do it and set it up, you know. Right. Uh, and, you know, shoot it a few frames at a time with, you know, digital cameras that anybody could afford. Right. Or surely borrow or rent. You know, it's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, if, if Tim Burton, you know, was 16 now. Yeah. God knows, you know, what he'd be shooting at 25. Yeah. Well, it's always, I mean, it's always... Uh, what I what I see sometimes a little bit is that everybody wants to has the technical aspects they don't quite know what they want to say mm-hmm. and so but the, the storytelling to, but that's the way to learn it and play with it you yeah. know I mean if you're you know I was never a big proponent of film school you know I mean make movies if you want to be a movie maker mm-hmm. and now you can. Yeah, And there's enough out there in terms of the thousands of great movies that are made and the thousands of great screenplays you can read and the thousands of great books that have stories in them. That's true. To understand that if you don't have a compelling story, it doesn't matter what you can do craft-wise. But for the first time, young people mm-hmm. can actually execute you know, a story with what they really have in their home. Mm-hmm. Well said. Thank you. Well said. Well, thank you, Brad, so much. It's a pleasure. For being here. I would do anything for you. I would crawl through broken glass naked, Ileana. Barbed through barbed. Would you crawl through barbed wire? In a minute. And thank you very much, (laughs) Tamara. Thank you. I'll come back anytime. Please come back anytime. Her hummus and her, I mean, snacks. We have snacks. We always have snacks. We we should sell those. I mean, we could show your son's animation, your claymation. Oh, he would be too embarrassed. But thank you. (laughs) I really appreciate it. It was super fun, Ileana. You You can find Brad on Twitter at Brad Wyman. Thank you, Brad. And you can buy Ileana's book, I Blame Dennis Hopper. It's now out in paperback and in bookstores. Also, our website is ilianaspodcast.com, and you can find us on Facebook as well. Yeah, please continue to like us and do all that stuff because we're, you know, as a friend of mine, a producer today said, oh, it's so important what you're doing, and we're, you know, we're just, I love talking about film history, and people get so much out of hearing these stories of people that have made great films, so thank you, Brad. Hopefully next time you'll get someone that made great films. No, of course (laughs) you have. You're so (laughs) self-deprecating. 
And people, I'm sure people were taking notes during how you talked. And as I always like to say, everyone's life is a movie with a beginning, a middle, and an end. This is the end of, of our show. And thanks again for being here, Brad. Thank you. Much love. Bye. From producers Maria Menunos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals.